Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you very much, Rachel Joseph. We appreciate that. Good introduction as always. When you hear that music and you hear that voice, you know you are getting into all things through the EPC, a podcast that drops every Friday at your favorite podcast sites. We had uh, in the last year something like 39 countries of people that tuned in around the world. And so thank you. Thank you for listening to us in, in Buenos Aires. Thank you for listening to us in Sierra Leone. Thank you for listening to us all over the world. It's um, just uh, an honor that you take that uh, 30, 35 minutes every week to tune in is a great blessing to us. And uh, if it is a blessing to you, we hope that you'll share that with others and pass it around. Uh, like us on social, post it on your Facebook page, give us a little shout out, anything like that. We're a, a low budget word of mouth podcast. And uh, the more that spreads, we hope the good work that God is doing through the EPC uh, spreads as well. And speaking of which, today we're delighted to have um, longtime EPC uh, teaching elder and professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, Donald Fortson. Don has um, got both his D-Min and PhD and is a professor of church history and pastoral theology at RTS, has served the EPC in a lot of different capacities over the, over the years, right now serves on our Fraternal Relations Committee. And Don is the author of a number of books. You'll have to Google his name and You'll see a whole list of them there, and we're going to talk about at least two or three of them uh, during the course of today's conversation. So, uh, Don, uh, welcome to In All Things. Thanks a lot. I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, it's great to have you, and we're looking forward to jumping into the conversation that is uh, part of what's found in our mission statement. You know, the EPC exists to carry out the Great Commission as Presbyterian, Reformed, Evangelical, and Missional churches, and uh, to be able to dig down a little bit on what does it mean to be Reformed and Evangelical. That is a fairly thin slice of the ecclesial pie, especially in the United States, but it's a space that the EPC has been called to live in, and um, I think Don has helped us to understand what that looks like over the years, so we're excited to have that conversation with him. Don, as we welcome you to the podcast today, those who have been around the EPC a long time most know you, but those who are new to the EPC may not. So give us a little bit of a, a background of your story. Well, I am a uh, fourth-generation Presbyterian, and uh, my father uh, actually entered the EPC before uh, I did. He is, was with Andy Jumper, one of our key founders at Central Church, uh, in his last pastorate. So I grew up in a Presbyterian minister's home, and by the grace of God, I— um, Went forward at a Billy Graham crusade in 1964. Wow. Uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. If you know Birmingham in the 1960s, that was a tense filled time. But God used that time, really made a commitment to the Lord when I was a elementary age kid mm. and felt a call to the ministry by the time I was really in high school and ended up going to Covenant College and then graduated from Columbia Seminary, old Southern Presbyterian School. My dad had also been a graduate of that school. And then um, out of seminary, took 
called to work at a church here in uh, Charlotte, where I was still am living in this area. And uh, our church came into the EPC in 1991. In fact, in the early 90s, I don't remember which year it was, we actually hosted the General Assembly back in those days. A number of churches were, you know, big enough that they could, could host the General Assembly. But I've been in APC now over 30 years. It's just amazing uh, to think about that. But Which is amazing because you're only 39. I mean, that's the yeah. incredible thing. So. <laughs> but it's been such a blessing to, to me. My dad was really in that founding generation in the really yeah. early, early years there. Central Press came in the EPC. And sure. so. It was just a delight for me to uh, have the opportunity a few years back to interview some of those founders and, and work on writing the history of the EPC. It was a real joy for me to do that. It was a, a real special thing. Well, especially uh, not only as a fourth generation child of the EPC, but also as a historian that merges two of your, two of your loves together in one project, right? That's true. Uh, I did want to talk about your your first book, if we could, or the most recent book, because I think it opens up a, a broader question, and then we'll come back and dig down a little bit into how the EPC fits into that. Uh, but your most recent book is Reformed and Evangelical Across Four Centuries, The Presbyterian Story in America. Tell us about how that book came about, like why why that particular book at this particular time? That book was really a result of kind of a 10-year process. It was quite interesting. I had met Dr. Ken Stewart at Covenant College, professor of theology there, and he and I were having lunch one day and just talked about how difficult it was to find good pressure and history texts that we could get our hands on. There were a lot of older ones that had been written mid-20th century, and there had been newer History's written, you know, about the PCA. I'd written one about the EPC. There were some OPC histories. And we were just concerned that we really don't have a comprehensive current Presbyterian history that can serve the whole family of Presbyterian churches. Because a lot had happened since the mid-20th century. You'd have the founding of the PCA, EPC, and ECO. And we're a big part of, of the Presbyterian story now. That was one of the, the, the issues that really drove us, is we felt like that the PCA, EPC, and ECO needed to have kind of their place at the table in telling the larger Presbyterian story. The other issue for us is we were concerned that so many of the Presbyterian history texts often will start with talking about Calvin and Knox and kind of 16th century stuff and kind of skip over the whole story of the English Reformation, and particularly in the uh, 17th century with uh, with Westminster and the Puritans and that kind of thing. And of course, that's really the immediate background for those of us that are English-speaking Presbyterians. So we were so committed to that because we felt like that backstory sets the table for really understanding American Presbyterianism, that our first five chapters of our book covered kind of that English context. Because that's our common, whether you're ECO, PCUSA, PCA, or EPC, that's our common heritage. That's right. It really is. And the, the other factor, which was important, is kind of the ethnic diversity of Presbyterianism in the latter half of the 20th century and first of the 21st century. And so we wanted to include, not only did we want to include a narrative 
that touched on the larger Presbyterian bodies, some of the smaller ones, but some of the, uh, the ethnic churches, and particularly the Korean Presbyterians, have become very significant part of the Presbyterian family of churches, a couple of good-sized denominations among the Korean Presbyterians. And so we felt like that part of the story needed to be told. So it's not just black and white Presbyterians, but Hispanic, and, and really to have a national story be told in all of its diversity incorporated in that. And then the overriding thing in the title, Reformed and Evangelical Across Four Centuries, I think captures it. We, we really wanted to trace the history of what we described in the book as a symbiotic relationship between evangelicals and Presbyterians over all this time, going back to the English context and then into America, because we felt like that was very important. Why did you guys think that was important? I agree with you, but I'd like to hear your thinking on that. I think the key issue was for the majority of Presbyterians that formed PCA, EPC, and ECO all were evangelicals within the mainline Presbyterian context. Right. That was a big deal. There had been some very small Presbyterian bodies that had separated earlier, but the vast majority of evangelicals within Presbyterianism had just stayed the course, prayed for renewal and revival in the main line, and it really was not until they really felt compelled with the dilution of biblical authority and compromise on social issues that they just felt compelled to leave. And so really that relationship between, you know, Reformed theology, uh, Presbyterianism, but the real evangelical ethos has always been a part of American Presbyterianism, all the way to the, back to the First and Second Great Awakenings, mm-hmm. the, uh, what we call the neo-evangelical movement in the mid-20th century with Billy Graham and that revival that uh, took place across America. And Presbyterians were really on the front of a lot of those things. And so we feel like there, you know, there are challenges because of our relationship to the evangelical movement, but there are also just some great opportunities we've had. And one of the ways that we have really contributed to the evangelical movement is through theological seminaries. Mm-hmm. If you go back to the founding of Princeton in 1812, you just see that some of the leaders in Baptist, Lutheran, Episcopal churches went to Princeton to get their training. And over the time of Presbyterians uh, in America, some of the great Presbyterian theologians have kind of served as key theological figures for the larger evangelical movement. And so there's just kind of this intersection of, as we called it, the symbiotic relationship between Presbyterians and evangelicals, which we believe is one of the primary streams in the story. And that's why we wanted to write the book. I think the reason why I asked you that question, which I really appreciate the fact that the book raises that out, because that's a tension we still wrestle with today, not just between mainline and more historically orthodox Presbyterian expressions, but also in terms of evangelism or the revivalist, the first and great awakenings in terms of Presbyterian tension there. Revivals are notorious for things getting out of hand, but listen, God uses <laughs> these things to call people to himself. Amen. And I said, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those college students don't make a commitment to full-time Christian service. We could certainly use that right now. That's for sure. We have a 
a shortage with all the baby boomers getting ready to retire and and the great resignation is is having its effect we we have a shortage so i i hope god sets ablaze the hearts of a of a whole generation of people that desire to serve him uh, whether it's uh, in the states or whether it's globally so your counsel and i so appreciate this don your counsel is that uh, we as as presbyterians because we are also evangelical presbyterians uh, we don't need to be afraid of a revival. That actually could be a, a, a gift to the church. But we bring something to bear probably as a revival hits that is maybe unique in the Christian expression too, right? Yes, I think we really do. This is what part of the story we try to tell in Reformed and Evangelical is, is that very thing. Presbyterians have participated in all these different awakenings, and, and they've always tended to have a bit of a controversial side because there's some that get involved in some extreme things, but you can't just throw baby out with a bathwater. And the, the level-headed, I think Presbyterians have always said, let's look at the good that God is doing in the midst of this. And I mean, we often pray for revival, and we shouldn't be surprised when God decides to uh, show up and work in the hearts of men and women and bring just a a renewal and revitalization that we all need and pray for. What I've been telling people, Don, is uh, practice the Gamaliel principle. (laughs) If it's of man's origins, it it will ultimately fizzle out and you won't have to worry about it. But if it's of God, you don't want to be opposed to it (laughs) or you find yourself opposing God and what he's doing. So better to, to go and join God in his activity and perhaps, you know, our biblical grounding uh, can help make sure that a good breakout of the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, cause some well-intended people to go off the tracks, but stay emblazoned with the Holy Spirit, but with an appetite uh, for Jesus and his word. Amen. Amen. Well, as Jonathan Edwards famously pointed out, one of the signs, you know, of genuine revival is an increased love for God's word. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's pivot a little bit to your book about the EPC, the Liberty and Non-Essentials, because the EPC is a, a unique expression of Presbyterianism in the United States and around the world. And maybe we're positioned in a way where we could interact with things like a revival differently than our brothers and sisters, maybe to the left or to the right of us. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I think that there's some real legitimacy to that, given our real ethos. You know, the EPC has a wonderful history. Our founders were so committed to evangelism and missions and took reform theology seriously, but but recognized that the, the gospel's the main thing. Right. And reform theology is such a fantastic foundation for us. And, and we love the Westminster Confession, but our primary calling is, you know, is to gospel ministry. And there's been, I think, a real uh, ecumenical spirit within the EPC over the years, working with other denominations, working with parachurch. A lot of our missionaries are associated with other missions. That kind of connection. What I tried to do in the book is just really show that, that much of what the EPC is about really is the DNA of what American Presbyterianism has been since the colonial times. If you look back to the earliest establishment of Presbyterianism in the New World, 
it was it was a broader experience and very eclectic. Uh, they were not just Scottish Presbyterians. You had English Presbyterians, Presbyterians from Wales. You had the Dutch Reformed. You had Huguenots, all of which helped found that first Presbytery, the first Synod, and then the General Assembly. And uh, very committed to the Westminster standards, but allowing some flexibility in uh, commitment to those. And that was a, a founding principle. The majority of the colonial Presbyterians, 75% of them, were on board with the Great Awakening. And as it moved into the uh, 19th century also, so many of the Presbyterians were uh, just delighted to see what God was doing as a part of the other revivals and awakenings of the 19th century. And, and I identified with a particular grouping within Presbyterianism from the 19th century known as the New School. For listeners that aren't familiar with old school and new school Presbyterians, there were two major different parties with different emphases in the 19th century, but the ethos of those two parties are still with us in contemporary Presbyterianism. It's just the things that we emphasize, the things that are most important to us, and a lot of it does have to do with, I think, the uh, a broader ecumenical spirit, and an understanding that as much as we love Presbyterianism, our commitment to the essentials of the faith and the gospel is the main thing, right. and what what drives us in, in missions and evangelism. I've heard you talk before about that DNA, or sometimes I call it the secret sauce of the EPC, the, finding that, that more broader-based humanism, um, a generous Calvinistic theology that allows us to kind of stretch to hold a couple of things in tension. Could you unpack that tension for us a little bit? It's part of what makes, I think, the EPC special. Yeah, I think things that you could point to particularly that are unique to the EPC, the two obvious ones are our understanding of the ordination of women and also the gifts of the Spirit. And if you look back at our founders, this is very much a part of the evangelical experience in the mainline context. They had come to terms with these issues through the longevity in the, the mainline church and had come to understand that it was more than just radical feminists that were pushing the ordination of women, that there were uh, evangelical women fully committed to the authority of Scripture that genuinely uh, interpreted the Word in light of uh, calling that women could have uh, to ministry. Mainline evangelicals had kind of come to terms with that. But the, our founders also respected the traditional viewpoints of my father's generation that were ordained in the Presbyterian ministry when there were no female clergy. And they they just felt like the way the mainline handled traditionalists on that issue was abysmal. And so, you know, our founders just said, you know, this issue is just not an essential to our ecclesiology. And it's not essential to uh, really the Reformed tradition. And we just need to allow liberty of conscience on this issue. And then with the charismatic issue, same thing. Some of our founders had really been touched by the charismatic renewal in the 60s and the 70s. And while some of it had been controversial among some of our very conservative Presbyterian brethren, the, the EP said, look, Here's another issue where we've got brethren that have had this experience. They are 
biblical and reformed in their theology, and they need to uh, have a place at the table. For those that hold traditional views on this, we ought to be able to work together in a context where we love one another, allow these differences, but we're just not going to go after one another of these issues. Uh, We're going to, again, try to focus on the main thing. Right. And that unity that we have in our evangelical commitments and basic reform theology. So I would say those are the two key illustrations of that. And the thing is that's encouraging to me is we were, as you likely know, a lot of our founders were told, you guys are never going to make it if you take this, this spirit. People are just going to fuss about this and you're just not going to make it. But our history has proven that our founders had a lot of prudence about this. And they said, you know, by the grace of God, yes, we can. And we have. And it's just so encouraging to me to see this over the the decades in the EPC, yeah. our willingness to live together in unity and love one another and focus on the main thing. Well, by the grace of God, Don, by the grace of God. I always uh, love talking to you and uh, probably even more, I love just listening to you because you, you help me with context. You know, I studied history in college as well. And, and I, you know, my professors used to say, if you don't learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And I've always learned that, you know, understanding your history, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of these things have a way of repeating themselves. And so understanding how Presbyterians historically interacted with the first and second great awakenings might be really helpful for us today, understanding how this kind of ecumenical, gracious spirit can navigate, you know, some very difficult times applies today. And so uh, studying our history actually has a terrific amount of relevance in terms of understanding who we are, who God has called us to be, and how we can live faithfully today in the, in light of those kind of core DNA founding convictions. And um, whenever I hear you talk, it gives me tremendous amount of perspective and puts things into context. And I think, okay, we've done this before. We can do this again. Well, amen. That's really true. The mothers and fathers of the faith have just laid a great foundation and we can learn from their mistakes and the things that they did well. And I remember hearing someone years ago describe it this way, that the, a lot of the spiritual ancestors are passive mentors in our lives, not with us in the flesh, but they continue to speak. And when we read Christian biography and read Christian history, we can really be encouraged to stay the course and see the way they navigated the challenges of their day and give us some insights on navigating those things today. because. It is really true. The, the issues that we discuss, it's, sometimes we think all those are unique to the time in which they live. Typically, they're not. Very similar issues have been faced by God's people. Humanity uh, is the same. God's work is the same. His Word is the same. And so we, we often are just going over well-worn territory. Right. But uh, we don't do ourselves any favor, though, by being ignorant of our Christian history, we can really shine light on the path for us. And there's glorious things there, and there's some awful things there, and we learn from yep. both of those things because God works through all things a whole, uh, for His purposes, for those who He loves and calls according to those purposes. Well, Don, thank you so much. If people were to want to connect with you, do you have any contact information, a website, or any way people can connect with you? Sure. 
Uh, and I would welcome that. My email uh, at the seminary is just dfortson at rts.edu. And you can check, if you go to the website of RTS in Charlotte, you can check the faculty area and, and you, it'll have a connection to some of the resources that I have, books I've written, audio recordings. And then the final thing I'll mention for folks that really have an interest in history, there's there's an RTS app. And in that app, we have free lectures. And I have three history courses that are available for folks to listen to the lecture. Church History 1, which covers early and medieval church. Church History 2, Reformation and Modern. And then I have a course uh, on American Presbyterianism that you can listen to just hours and hours of history if you don't have anything better to do while you're driving down the road. All right. It's all free. And we, I mean, we've had several million hits on all those lectures over the years. It was just a great idea for them to make them freely available to uh, whoever would like to be blessed. I love it. I love it. Well, a couple of the books uh, I encourage our listeners to consider Don's most recent book, Performed in Evangelical Across Four Generations, The Presbyterian Story in America. If you're part of the EPC, you might want to get a copy of Liberty in Non-Essentials, the story of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And then uh, back, I think in 2012 or so, Don wrote The Presbyterian Story, Origins and Progress of a Reformed Tradition. So if you want a paper copy in your hands, uh, those are three great resources. You can just Google Don and uh, his books will pop up there and you can get those. Or if you want to get that uh, RTS app and listen to those lectures as you drive, not in replacement of this podcast, mind you, but as a compliment to this podcast, I think you'd be super blessed. So Don, thank you so much for blessing us with your presence today. It's always a gift. Well, thank you for this opportunity. All right. Well, my friends, that wraps it up for our conversation today. And uh, I really do encourage you, if you're listening in, to to make use of that app that Don talked about. And uh, that could be something where you could have a, a course at your church on, on church history. It could be just you yourself brushing up on those kind of things. But if we understand where we've come from, we'll understand better where we are and where we're going. Uh, that's really, in many ways, the way God interacts with his people, not just through the scriptures, but throughout church history. Those things are there for us to continue to learn the lessons of what it means to be his people. So with that encouragement, I end with this good word from God's word, as we always do, to put all of these things, including our history, in perspective. The Son is the image of the invisible God, my friends. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things. The Greek there, ta pontos, there's nothing outside of it. It's inclusive of everything. All things have been created through him and they're for him. You see, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. For he is the head of the body, the church, Thanks for listening again today, my friends. Until the next time we gather for a conversation like this, grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. 
For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.